0: Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Chevalier and I'm Associate Director um, of Lumen Christi. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you to this first lecture in our new series on reason and beauty in Renaissance Christian thought and culture. This series is born out of an exciting collaboration with the American Cusano Society. And I'm grateful to David Albertson, Il Kim, Peter Cassarella, Uh, Dennis Robichaud, and Jason Alexander and everyone involved uh, in speaking in this series for helping to pull this together. Um, I'll leave it to uh, one of our speakers, Professor Alexander, who's Vice President of the Society, to introduce you to their work. But if you aren't familiar with Nicholas of Cusa, you can actually catch up on the lecture that we had two weeks ago by Professor David Albertson um, at our YouTube channel or at our webpage. Now this series captures well the work of Lumen Christi in which we try to draw together expert scholars and teachers whose work engages with the the Christian intellectual tradition in its depth and diversity, and to try and make this tradition available to students and to wider audiences. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so in two different ways. First, you can help us spread the word. This is only the first of a 10 week series um, and we'd love to have more people attending. So you can, uh, you can share our emails, you can spread this on social media and the, tonight's webinar will be recorded. So you can even send the very first event to your friends. Um, second, you can also support our work to bring the Christian intellectual tradition to wider audiences by donating at our website at wwwlumenchristiorg donate. Now, before handing it over to Rob, I wanna call your attention to three events that are taking place next week. It's a very rich week for us um, for engaging this um, wider Christian intellectual tradition. On June 22nd, we are holding a special event on race, Catholicism and justice featuring um, different legal scholars from across the country. Um, So join next Monday, June 22nd at 5 p.m. On Tuesday, June 23rd, this series continues with Professor Il Kim uh, presenting on Alberto and Renaissance architecture. And then on Wednesday, June 24th, in the middle of the day, um, we are holding a lecture with um, a professor from England, Simon Conway Morris, a paleontologist and evolutionary um, biologist, uh, who will be um, presenting a lecture on what evolution does and does not tell us about the human person. Um, I'll now hand it over to our moderator tonight, um, Dr. Robert Porval, who will introduce our speakers and get us going. Thank you again for joining us.
1: Rob. Thank you, Michael. Indeed, welcome to this first presentation and the new series, Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. While our previous series available on YouTube looked at the tension between contemplation and dialectics, this new series uh, picks up somewhat in the chronology and highlights ways that the rational and aesthetic pursuits interlocked each other and fed each other in Christian thought and culture in the Renaissance. Uh, as Michael mentioned, we're very pleased to uh, be presenting this as a collaboration with the American Cusana Society. Our upcoming presentations include varied and rich topics, including Leon Baptista Alberti on arc and art and architecture. Next week, uh, after that, Marsilio Ficino on platonic philosophy, the uh, importance of women in the, the humanist movement, uh, Titian's paintings and as uh, iconography, and Giordano Bruno on the poetry of the cosmos and many others. During the presentation at any time, you can ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And after the presentation, I'll come on to moderate a a short Q&A session with our presenters. Let me now introduce our two presenters. Professor Jason Alexander teaches interdisciplinary courses in philosophy, theology, medieval studies at San Jose State University. His research expertise includes Dante, and he is currently at work on a book project on Dante's Divine Comedy, redefining faith in the divine comedy, theology, ethics, and the poetics of orthopraxis. He is now the president, vice president of the American Crisana Society. We're delighted to have him for this first event. Professor Ariella Saber teaches romance languages and literatures at Bowdoin College, and her research specializes in medieval and modern Italian literature Renaissance Theory and Science Fiction. She is the recipient of many prizes and fellowships and is, as well as many publications and is currently working on a series of essays on Dante as well as a study on empathy for the non-human in Renaissance Italian humanist thought. We are very delighted that Professor Saber has agreed to present for us tonight. Professor Saber and Professor Alexander, may I invite you to uh, turn on your cameras and to unmute yourselves. Wonderful, let me hand it over to you.
2: Hi, um, I'm Arielle Saber. Thank you so much uh, to to Dr. Porwall and Dr. Chevalier uh, who we worked with in uh, setting up this event and to Dr. Tierney and Mark Franzen all from the Lumen Christi uh, Institute. It's an honor for us to be part of this and uh, Jason and I have known each other for many years and as philosopher and literary critic, and I did major in philosophy in college as well, we often have discussions in person and this is something now we are doing in public. So I did wanna also thank uh, the Kuzanis uh, Society and Dr. David Albertson and Il Kim. And I know uh, Jason and I will use his first name, we'll be mentioning more about the Kuzanis Society later. So, um, I tend to talk a little fast. i I hope that will be okay. I'm also putting a lot of data on the slides. Um, is the screen being shown? I hope we can see the, Not
1: uh, yet. Would you like to share your screen?
2: Yes. Let's see. Share screen. Okay. Let's see. There we go. Okay. So, um, We put together uh, a bunch of slides to go with our presentation today, and it's going to be pretty much of an overview of Dante as poet and Dante as philosopher. I'll be speaking about him as a poet and Jason uh, Dante as a philosopher and much of his philosophical thought. We're gonna go back and forth a couple of slides and then a couple of slides. There's gonna be more detail on our slides than we will get to discuss, but we figured since this is being recorded, You will be able to go back and pause uh, on the recorded version to see some more of the detail we will not get to speak about. Um, So I'm going to begin with some of the highlights of Dante's life and some of these things you probably know already. I'll try to go quickly. I'm just going to do a couple of these highlights. So he was born in the San Martino neighborhood of Florence, which uh, I put some dots here on a map from 1470, which of course post dates Dante dies in 1321, and also a Google map. And you can see that it is somewhere between the cathedral, uh, the dome wasn't there when Dante uh, was alive, and the Piazza della Signoria. And this is where he was born in 1265. Another important moment in his young life, when he was around nine, in 1274, he recounts that he saw a beautiful young girl in the church uh, that we have here, Santa Margherita de Cerchi. we think this is in fact, or perhaps where Dante sees Beatrice, who we will write about um, extensively throughout his works for the rest of his life, we do not know if she was a real person. We do not know if she was a composite person, if Beatrice was a name, Beatrice was a name um, to hide the actual person. But there is a real Beatrice di Folco Portinari who went to this church and was the appropriate age. Apparently she was eight, almost nine as well. When Dante sees her, doesn't speak to her for the first time. In um, I'm not going to read through all of these points here. I'm just going to read the ones that are in yellow. In 18, uh, in 1283, when Dante is 18, he writes about his second encounter with Beatrice. And so now she is also about 18 in his uh, text called the Vita Nuova or Vita Nova, where he combines poetry and prose, prosimetrum, to talk about his love for this being, this woman, um, and also how it pains him and transforms him. I will talk about it a little bit later. This painting here from Henry Holliday, from much later, of course, from the 19th century, shows Dante here looking longingly at Beatrice, who would be in the center, who is not looking back at him in pure white. Uh, The other two women, of course, are looking at Dante and wondering what he is doing. Also in 1283, we have his first poem that we know of uh, that he wrote then. So moving on, um, 1290. Beatrice dies. If this is the actual Beatrice, Porco Portinari um, may have died of childbirth, we're not sure, but it really has a huge impact on Dante and he writes the Vita Nuova. He writes more poetry about her and he comments on his poetry and his love and his suffering and ultimately how his love for her transforms him into someone looking for spirit and for God and towards God and towards the light. Um, So 1290s, after her death, and he's writing the Vita Nuova between 1292 and 94, he throws himself also into the study of philosophy. He's a young man. He's probably married at this point. Um, But he throws himself into the study of philosophy. And Jason will speak more about this. This image here, another Rossetti image, is a famous one in which Dante speaks of, in the Vito Nova, a dream he has that Beatrice is going to die. And then, of course, she does. Um, A lot more information here. Things in red are his texts that he wrote, his literary texts, and also his philosophical texts. 1295, an important year is when he begins his political career. And Dante was very committed to thinking about the world. And Jason will be talking more about this in terms of a universality and a kind of justice that he is not seeing in his government and in his city and in the country. We couldn't exactly call uh, Italy a country as such at that time, but in the regions in which he lived at that time. So 1295, he starts that by 1300, He's elected to an important position and serves as a high-level magistrate. 1300 is also an important year for the Divine Comedy, the commedia. That's the fictional year in which the pilgrim begins his journey. And we'll be talking about that a little more. Also 1300 is a jubilee year in which Boniface VIII um, uh, proclaims this year as such. 1302, another important year. I won't go into the details, but this is when Dante is on the wrong political side of the fence and is exiled for life with a death sentence from the city. So he was a white Guelph, meaning part of the people, group of people in Florence at the time and in Tuscany who supported the idea of a holy Roman emperor taking care of temporal uh, concerns, not the papacy, not the Pope. Whereas the black Guelphs were allied with the pope and believed that the pope should have power, both temporally and spiritually. So Dante, exiled as a white wealth. These texts, the De vulgari eloquentia and the convivio, Jason will be talking about, two very important philosophical texts that he writes just after he's exiled. And he starts bouncing around Italy. And I won't go into all the places he goes to and all of the wonderful patrons who host him and they are quite wonderful people and he writes about them in his texts in different moments. But we see that around 1304 or maybe 1307 is when he starts writing the Inferno. We think he ends writing it around 1309. 1304 to 15, around this time, we get a number of letters. And I wrote here 13 with a question mark 12, we're pretty sure, are Dante's, and there is one more that is of debated attribution. Um, But the epistles are interesting letters. He writes them to politicians, to popes, he writes some to poet friends, but by epistle, he's doing a particular kind of writing that is intended for a public to read it, not just the person he's sending it to or the people he's sending it to. So these letters that we have, 12 for sure, and maybe the 13th, um, he knew people were going to read beyond the destiny. And in fact, scholars say that chances are there weren't many more that Dante wrote that were meant to be open letters. So we think we have a good number, maybe the majority of open letters of epistles that Dante wrote. And then 1308 to 1312 is when he writes the purgatory more or less, dates are very complicated uh, in Dante's works. And in 1312, again, a date that's very much uh, debated, he writes his political treatise on monarchy which Jason will also be discussing. Uh, the last couple of things, the last bio page, Paradise, he's writing towards the end of his life. He dies in 1321, the Paradiso, and he dies in Ravenna being hosted uh, by one of his patrons there. He's buried in Ravenna. Of course, when he becomes famous, Florence wants him back. There are lots of struggles about where Dante's bones should lie. In fact, Guy Raffa, just this year, 2020, published a wonderful book called Dante's Bones, How a Poet Invented Italy. And in this book, he really tracks what I would say is the adventure of Dante's bones, the many, many Groups of people and individuals who tried to take parts of Dante and move him to other places. Um, It's not until 1829 that Florence actually um, builds a cenotaph, an empty tomb uh, for Dante in Santa Croce. And the last thing I want to note is that this year, 2020, March 25th is officially now recognized as Dante D, the day of Dante, in which we celebrate Dante. 20, March 25th perhaps is the day around which the fictional journey begins in the Divine Comedy. So that's an interesting point too. So now I'm just going to give you a, a couple of minutes about some of Dante's poetic heritage. And then I, I'm going to be turning this over to Jason. And I wanted to start out with um some of his favorite classical poets and they are the usual suspects, but I will point them out here Virgil, Homer, Horace, Ovid, and statius. sometimes he even tries to transcend them and he admits that he does so. And in fact in Inferno 4, which is the first circle of hell, which is limbo where the virtuous pagans uh, who unfortunately were born before Christ dwell they're not suffering, they're not in pain, but they don't, have that light and that knowledge of of a Christian heaven and so they cannot go there. But what's interesting is when Dante, with Virgil as his guide, um, gets to limbo, the thing he's most excited about is being part of the bella scola, the splendid school of Homer, Horace, Avid, Lucan, and Virgil, and here's a a Dore image uh, of Dante meeting these great poets, and he says, because each of these spirits shares with me the name called out before by the lone voice, they welcome me, and in doing that, do well. He's saying, I too am a poet, and he says, even greater honor than was mine, for they invited me to join their ranks. I was sixth among such intellects. The issue of pride in Dante is something we can definitely talk about. Here, uh, very quickly, I will not read through the names, are four basic uh, schools or or trends of of poetic production in the Middle Ages, in the vernacular. So now we're going from the classics to the medieval poets. And this first group, the Occitan and Provencal troubadours, many of these poets would uh, have music accompanying their their poetry and and sing their poetry as well. This is 11th century to mid 14th century and here we're looking at poems that talk about courtly love, aulic, aula meaning court or hall, courtly love, morality, um, music and arms, so some military, there's some humor and satire in this poetry as well. It's very high art, it's very elegant and it is also much connected with the medieval concept of the Arsa Mandi, the arts of love, Andreas Capellanus and um, the Roman de la Rose that Dante, of course, knew of and actually imitated in one of his earliest works. Then we get the Scuola Siciliana, the 1230s and 50s. So coming down from the south of France into Sicily, and then it's gonna go up through the Italian peninsula, the poetry starts to to change as it, as it moves into the Sicilian uh, language. And we get more this idea of not just courtly love, but of the gentle or even genteel, gentle woman and women. Natural science starts to become part of this poetry. Many different kinds of vernacular language um, begins to be integrated into this poetry and the expanse of lexicon becomes an interesting element that we see in the Scuola Siciliana much more so than in the earlier school. Then it sort of takes a turn as it goes up the peninsula, and this is really important because this is something Dante will fight against. The Siculo Toscani of the late 13th century, Guitone d'Arezzo being the main uh, poet of this school, takes this poetry from the Sicilian time into a much more closed and complex kind of format, stylistic complexity, politics, again, war, social commentary, the truth of love um, in in very rigid uh, ways that the Scuola Siciliana didn't use. And of course, uh, Dante and his people will not use as much either. This closed language, this tuba, this idea that it's, you gotta be in the know to understand what's being said here, even some rougher language and less philosophy. This school is doing something different. Dante studies this, he experiments with it, but then he moves into this new kind of school that we now call the Novisti. And Guido Guinizelli is the um, grandfather, shall we say, or the father of this school and here is where dante really finds his voice as a poet here he starts to think about love poetry and nobility he starts to think of love as something that can take you towards god the woman as an angelic sort of intermediary between you and god love as charity there's a psychology of love the psycheology the psuke the soul and praise and conversion. So we get an incredible amount of spirituality and metaphysics that starts happening with the still novisti. In Purgatory 23, I won't read this, we see this term Dolce Stil Novo. Dante uses it uh, put in the mouth of someone from the Sicolo Toscano school, um, basically saying, this is the beautiful school of which you were a part, Dante, that I was not. And I, again, won't be reading these terms, but here are some of the frequent terms that we see in still uh, novista poetry that Dante is such a champion of. So gentilezza, beauty, nobility, dreams, angels, another category, the soul, spirit, breath, mind, intellect, reason, mercy, pity, tears, of course, psychomachia, the battle inside your heart and your mind and your soul, death, Friendship is an interesting uh, theme throughout the still Novo and eloquence and poetry itself. So almost the last slide, I'm gonna just, uh, this is gonna be a lot of information, but I just want to make sure you all know about these texts that Dante wrote, poetic works that he wrote other than the comedy. The Fiore and the Decto d'Amore, these are a bunch of sonnets. When he was quite young, 1280s based on the early uh, French love poetry in Arsamandi and the Detto d'Amore similarly connected to this uh, tradition in setenari couplets. His rime giovanili, his young rhymes. So the rhymes we'll say before he goes into exile, um, he experiments with these different styles that I mentioned, these different poets with whom he's friends or not friends, tensioni, which are sort of poetic debates Um, or slamming each other back and forth. They can often be quite intense, riddles, ethics of love. The Vita Nuova, which I mentioned before, which is after the Commedia, his most famous uh, poetic work. And it's an interesting kind of poetic work because it is um, a number of poems, 25 sonnets, one ballata and five canzoni, embedded in uh, prose in Dante's own glossing, his self-commentary, it's called Prozimetru, and he calls this short book his libello, his little book, and this is the account of Dante's love for Beatrice. Tenzone with Forese Donati, one of his friends, also perhaps related to his wife, I didn't mention that, in fact, Dante was married and he had uh, three children, uh, maybe uh, a fourth, we're not sure. Dante says nothing about his children or his wife in any of his works, so we know very, very little there is a chance that his sons most likely did come uh, to be with him when he was in exile after 1315. His wife and daughter may have come as well too. So anyway, getting back to the Forese Donati sonnets, they slander each other, they're scurrilous, they're kind of wild. Dante somewhat regrets that he wrote these, but they're very important in, in thinking about Dante's ability to move through styles and different kinds of harsh and low language and high and exalted language. The Rime Petrose, similarly a little bit later, different poetic forms. This is love for another woman that is not Beatrice who is stony and is rejecting him. And Dante uses erotic language, more complex closed language like the Siculo Tuscan school actually and very harsh language. When people look at some of the harsher poetry that Dante wrote, they think, ah, he was getting practice for the inferno, you know, he's not just a airy, you know, exalted, uh, ecstatic love po- uh, poet writer. The Convivio, I'm not gonna talk about this because Jason Will has three poems, three canzoni. And then Dante writes some eclogues in Latin hexameter with someone named Giovanni di Vergilio, who's a professor in Bologna, uh, a very interesting um, moment in which, Giovanni is asking Dante to please stop writing in the vernacular. Please write in Latin because if you do, if you write your commedia, if you write other great works, epic or other, in Latin we can give you the laurel crown and Dante says no, and he says no, he wants to continue writing in the vernacular and he doesn't want the laurel crown in Bologna, he wants to receive it in Florence, so there are some issues there. And then the last thing here is just that there are many other poems, uh, seven for sure, uh, in various forms that Dante wrote that are considered during his time of exile. And here I'm not going to say anything, but just for you to have a a glance at some of the other kinds of poetic forms that Dante used from the very simple uh, settenari couplets to the sonnet, hexameter, all the way to the extremely complex and mathematical sestina lyric, which may or may not have given him some ideas about inventing the terza rima, which I will talk about later. So here are just a couple of translations and studies of Dante's poetic works that I wanted to recommend. We also have a bibliography at the end of this presentation today that you will be able to see. So now I turn this over to Jason.
3: Hello, good evening. Um, I'm going to just talk very briefly about three of the treatises, the three treatises that Ariella mentioned. Um, These treatises, in addition to the poetic works that Professor Saber mentioned, uh, and the surviving Latin epistles, as well as a public lecture called the Questio de Aqua et Terra, these three are the main philosophical works, and so they've received the most attention by Dante scholars of Uh, of Dante's philosophical writings. But I just want to say a little bit about them tonight. Uh, And uh, before I talk about the individual ones, I want to start by mentioning a couple of things to keep in mind first, two of these texts, the De vulgaria eloquentia and the convivio, they were abandoned in an unfinished state in the early 1300s. So they have a kind of fragmentary status in relationship to Dante's corpus of writings. Uh, Moreover, the circumstances of Dante's authorship of the third text there, the De Monarchia, is also hotly debated. So, as a result, the second point is that the status of these three texts relative to the Commedia, the Divine Comedy, is also contested. Some interpreters tend to see or tend to read these three treatises pretty much in light of their own interpretations of the Commedia and the regard of the Commedia as repudiating the earlier texts when the earlier texts appear to offer incompatible views. Uh, Others tend to see these three texts as um, involving common themes with the Commedia and uh, allow these texts to help guide the interpretation of the Commedia, but for the most part they're read in light of uh, Dante's unquestioned uh, magnus opus. Um, I won't stake out an an interpretation of of those debates for tonight, but I do want to uh, give you just a little bit of an overview of these i having trouble. there we go, these three individual texts. So first, the De Vulgari Quintia. it was a treatise in Latin. It was begun around 1303, so not long after the exile that Ariel mentioned, and abandoned probably a year or two later. Um, it has two tractates that were more or less finished before it was a- abandoned. The book one concerns the origins and development of human languages and offers a dialectical investigation of the features of human language that would constitute what Dante calls an illustrious vernacular. Uh, Book two refines the definition of the illustrious vernacular and then begins to articulate some of the principles that ought to govern the proper poetic use of that particular vernacular. Um, One of the interesting things that's going on in this text is that Dante speculates that the original human vernacular, that of Adam, was already perfectly equipped for the best of uses uh, to communicate rational content through sensible signs. Now, according to the De Volgaria Laquintia, the illustrious vernacular was lost due to human folly in the construction of the Tower of Babel. Uh, But traces of that original form linger in existing vernaculars in different regions of the world down to the present day. In Paradiso 26, Dante revisits that same view, and he has Adam himself explained to the pilgrim that the original vernacular was a gift that was lost with the introduction of sin into the world about six hours after his creation. Uh, So it didn't last very long. Uh, So there, Dante uh, ties, there in the Paradiso, Dante seems to tie the diversity of world languages to human corruption in general, whereas in the Navagari Eloquentia, it's, it's connected with to the Tower of Babel in particular. But other than that, they, they share a lot of common features in terms of uh, the way that Dante is conceiving of the uses of the possible uses of, a, of an illustrious vernacular. So in general, he says that an illustrious vernacular should serve the aims of universality. It should help bind people together into a common community or a common political uh, block. Uh, Nevertheless, there's a kind of tension in his thinking about this as a vernacular. He's also aware that the illustrious vernacular subject subject to change historically and that it's historically and politically situated. You can't transform the hearts and minds of, of human beings if you're not rooted in a vernacular that is itself subject to that same corruption that you're trying to to repair. So it's a really interesting text in terms of the tensions that it explores there. Let's talk a little bit about the convivio. The convivio is the other of the two uh, treatises that would, were not completed. It was composed not in Latin, like the De divulgare Eloquentia, but instead in Italian, in the vernacular, uh, begun around 1303, around the same time as the De Eloquentia, and probably abandoned a little later, around 1307 or 1308. It was originally envisioned as a banquet consisting of 14 courses, each tractate, Except for the first of those 14 tractates, would have commented on a canzone. Uh, so Dante completed only four of the, well, almost completed. The, the, there's some, the, the status of books two and book three of the are a bit fragmentary, but he completed only about four of these 14 planned tractates uh, that we know of before he abandoned it. Book one uh, offers a plan for the work and a justification for his composing it in the vernacular. Book two of the Convivio discusses cosmology. Uh, he offers an extended allegory that identifies each of the heavenly spheres with a different intelligente Associated, uh, The seven planets are associated with each of the seven liberal arts. Physics and metaphysics are associated with the, the, the sphere of the fixed stars. A moral philosophy is associated with the prima mobile, and theology is associated with the Empyrean. Now, that's gonna become relevant when we get to the Divine Comedy or the Commedia in a minute. Uh, Book three, in book three, Dante offers an extended praise of uh, lady philosophy now uh, conceived as a Donna Gentile. And here he's, in a sense, he's returning to some of the content of La Vita Nuova, but giving it a very different impulse in his commentary on his own canzone. Uh, So he conceives of lady philosophy as an intelligence uh, in her own right, uh, somewhat angelic, who imparts the happiness, highest happiness, highest human happiness to those who love her, uh, perfecting their natures, perfecting the human natures and drawing them close to God. The discussion in the convivio is seen by some interpreters as endur- endorsing possibly heterodox or Cavalcantian or Averroist themes. Others see it as influenced very strongly by Albertus Magnus. But Between books three and book four in the convivio Dante makes a transition away from this kind of Neoplatonic content of books two and three that are heavily influenced by the Liber de Causis, by Albertus Magnus, he transitions away from those considerations, the cosmological considerations in book four to a discussion of the nature of nobility. And here in book four, he begins to he begins to articulate a, a political philosophy Through the definition of nobility, uh, he explicitly aligns himself with an Aristotelian ethics and focuses on uh, what Aristotelian ethics might have to tell us about uh, the nature of good governance. Uh, And there he offers a, a justification for the expediency and the value of a universal monarchy in establishing political conditions for directing the development of moral virtues in human beings, and preparing the way for the development of intellectual virtues as well. The argument there in the in the convivio uh, in in book four is an argument that he comes back to and extends on in the Monarchia. So I'll offer a little bit more detail in discussing that. The Monarchia was composed in Latin. Uh, it was completed in Dante's life. It was disseminated during his life. Uh, However, there are three main camps that argue that it was either composed in 1308 near uh, to the, near the beginning of the uh, reign of Henry VII as Holy Roman Emperor or that it was in 1312 uh, when Henry VII descended into Italy or that it was later. Um, And part of the difficulty in establishing the, the, the time period in which Dante wrote it is that the text was disseminated quite widely in the late 1320s, after Dante's death, when it came to be deployed as propaganda supporting Louis IV's claim to the title of Holy Roman Emperor. So that the, the, the uh, proliferation of manuscripts has made the dating of the monarchy, uh, monarchy a, a difficult matter. Uh, it was also condemned by the papal legate, Cardinal Bertrand de Pouget in 1328 or 1329, and interestingly, it seems that Dante himself barely escaped from posthumous burning on that occasion. Uh, we can return to that in question and answer if you're interested. Now the basic argument here repeats and elaborates on many of the themes in Covivio IV, but with a few innovations. Uh, Dante stresses that there are two main scopes of authority in the world, one spiritual and one temporal, and that they both derive their authority directly from God. Uh, the spiritual authority is, of course, the pope, whereas the temporal authority would be that of the, the, the emperor, and in particular of the Holy Roman emperor, because Dante makes an argument that the authority of the emperor, in fact, is rooted in a providential history of the Roman empire specifically, that it was Rome that was established as the seat of imperial authority, and that, uh, and that part of the, uh, the justification for the universality of monarchy is that providential history. Um, The other arguments in the, in both before the convivio as well as the monarchia uh, emphasize that mixing authorities, mixing the temporal with the spiritual authority is bound to end badly. And there's also independent arguments in both texts that philosophy constitutes a kind of third independent authority, that it's, the philosophy's proper scope of, of authority like the emperor's is in the temporal world and it ought not be subjected or subordinated to theology uh, in terms of its purposes. But there he's thinking of philosophy specifically as ethics or as political uh, philosophy rather than as cosmology. And at this point, I think I'll turn this back over to Ariel to talk about the Divine Comedy and get us into the discussion of the Comedia. Let's see, thank
2: you. Uh, can you see my screen again? Is that, is that sharing? Not, not yet. Not yet. Okay. There we go. Okay, great. Thank you, uh, Jason. And of course, there's so much dialogue we could be having, but we're just doing a quick overview and um, the ways in which poetry and philosophy, of course, intersect, uh, especially in the Commedia, there is so much to say. Um, so here is the translation, um, from 1997 to 2010 by Robert Derling. Uh, he did the translation and with Ronald Martinez, uh, also the footnotes to a really great edition uh, of the Divine Comedy Um, and there are many as there are many editions and translations of the poetic works and the philosophical works that Dante wrote political works there are also many discussions about what constitutes uh, a certain group of poems and whatnot but we wanted to offer this as ones that we both have used for our teaching um, and also um, in our research So I just wanted to get us back to the Commedia here or actually begin the Commedia. And as you notice, Jason and I have been calling it the Commedia and not the Divina Commedia or the Divine Comedy. And the reason for that is that Dante actually calls his poem the Commedia twice actually in his uh, Inferno and modern Italian, is Commedia, which is the more frequent way of saying it now. It's actually in 1348 that a, another uh, canonical author, Giovanni Boccaccio, uh, just after Dante's time, decides to call it a divine comedy in his Trattatello, his, his treatise um, in praise of Dante and his commentaries on Dante. And it sort of takes hold, this idea of it being not just a comedy, but a divine comedy. And we'll talk a little bit about why it's called a comedy if we, if we have time. So that's where that originates. Um, here you can see, this is a poster I got in, in Florence. It's just wonderful. It's the entire divine comedy, all 100 canticles, uh, 100 cantos, three canticles. Uh, as you can see, 14,233 verses. Each verse is in hendecasyllable, syllable, which is 11 beats. The rhyme is terza rima, which I'll talk about in a minute. And the language of course is the vernacular, the Tuscan uh, Italian vernacular with uh, integrations of other dialects, uh, many neologisms that Dante invents, especially in Paradiso, which is quite interesting and Latin and other languages here and there as well. The shortest, uh, the longest canto is Purgatory 32 up in the Garden of Eden on the top of Purgatory. And the shortest canto is Inferno 11 which is an explanation of the layout of hell. So interesting, just little points there. Here, uh, just to show you um, the Terza Rima is a quite interesting um, form in that from what we understand, um, no one before Dante uh, used this form. It seems as if he invented it, as if he created it for the divine comedy. So the way that you read a, a hendecasyllable syllable is primarily the main rhythmic accent is on the 10th syllable and the secondary accent is on the sixth though these can vary and it can fall elsewhere, but a common way of reading many of the verses would be Nel mezzo del camin di nostra vita, di vita. And so that kind of rhythmic sound or 11 beats. And then in terms of the rhyme scheme, I like to think of it as a braid in which to start out a canto, you have two words in a rhyme, then everything after that is three, oscura, dura, pura paura, forte, morte, scorte, etc. And then all the way to the end of a canto, if you're gonna end the terza rima, it's gotta be only two rhymes as well. And scholars and critics have obviously thought about this. The idea of the three rhyme makes sense with the Trinity and Dante's project uh, in uh, a journey towards God. There are other questions, uh, other thoughts about how the Terza Rima represents a kind of infinity and a backward and forward movement at the same time. And Dante's journey, in a sense, is a return home in that he's returning to God, but then once again back to Earth. So there are many ways of thinking also symbolically about the form that that Dante chose for his Commedia. I also wanted to to show you um, an early manuscript copy uh, of the Commedia. This is not the earliest. The earliest is from 1336, the early scribal copy. Um, And we have 1337, the earliest illustrated manuscript, the Trivulziano, which is in Milan. And this uh, text is actually the one that the most authoritative edition, uh, the Petrocchi edition of the Divine Comedy is based. There have been many, many um, recent rethinkings, even of the wonderful Petrocchi edition, changes and edits. One thing that people might not know is we have nothing in Dante's hand, not a signature, not a poem, not a letter, nothing. There are a few descriptions of his style of writing, what his, uh, his letters look like, but we have nothing. So scholars, philologists, literary critics have had great, great work trying to put together these early copies of which there were many because this text was popular extremely quickly. We think that Dante would write a few cantos and then send them to scribes and have those copied while he continued on with the text. He might have waited until he was done with the conticles, sent all 34 or 33 out at a time, but we know he couldn't have gone back to edit if he was doing it that way. We know for sure he didn't wait until the entire thing was written before he released it into the world. Just a few other things. The first printed edition was 1472, um, in, in Umbria, and this is actually quite early for the printing press. It comes in the 1460s in, in Italy, and so this shows again how popular this text was for it to be one of the early printed works in Kunabula. Um, 1555 is the first printed edition with the word divina in it. So before, just Commedia, then Divina Commedia. And just as a note for us English speakers, the first English translation of the whole Commedia, there were parts and just the inferno before this, was between 1805 and 1814 with Henry Francis Carey. And for us in America, uh, it was Longfellow who did the first American translation of the Divine Comedy in 1867. And here just for fun to show you is that first line we read on the last slide Nel mezzo del chamin, 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 it would be chamin, this is uh, Florentine H in there, di nostra vita, and one more line, mi ritrovai per, abbreviation, una selva oscura, so really fun to try to read the early manuscripts. Here, just a quick reminder, for those of you who haven't read the Commedia in a while, or maybe only read the Inferno, the journey looks like this. Dante starts um, on Maundy Thursday, this is Dante Pilgrim, uh, starts the day before Good Friday, April-ish 1300, maybe March, Um, and he's at the entrance to hell. I put it here, some people think the entrance to hell is in uh, Kuma near Napoli, very possible. If you've ever been there, you might agree with me. Um, Satan is here frozen in the center of the earth in place and very interesting way how he gets there. We could discuss that later. Then Dante goes through hell, pops out the other side. Here he is in the Southern Hemisphere, goes up all of Mount Purgatory. Here's at the top is Earthly Paradise where he gets to see Beatrice again, and she takes over as the guide where Virgil was the guide uh, through hell and up through Purgatory. Then we get this hard thing to imagine, but if you can imagine Russian dolls or sort of clear spheres one inside the other. These are the material heavens or the material spheres. And Dante moves through them and meets uh, his, uh, the characters and the the blessed souls that he is meant to meet in Paradiso, but they're not really there. Those are sort of like holographic images there to teach him and to learn him, uh, uh, teach him things for him to learn. And then beyond that, we have the Empyrean. And this is really outside of space and time. This is God's space. God is somewhere, as a still point, uh, somewhere in the Empyrean, moving everything. And all we know is Dante is in this space at part of his journey. And he sees the angelic hierarchies. He sees the rose where all the blessed actually are. He has his moment the very end of the very last canto, we'd love to discuss if we have time, um, the very last lines of the Divine Comedy, he sees God and then he returns home to where he started. So this is a quick itinerary of the journey. The last thing I'm gonna say before I turn it over to Jason again, a few of the questions and issues around the literary aspects of the Commedia, there are hundreds, thousands, but a few big ones are, why did Dante choose to write an epic poem and this particular kind of poem, this poem in the vernacular. Why is it called a comedy? Is it a fictio? Is it a fiction? Did he just invent this? Or a visio, was it a vision? Did Dante actually experience this journey, take it in a dream, in some sort of ecstatic um, experience? And then how did the poem circulate? I mentioned a little bit about this, and how was it received? by um, the people of his time and shortly after that. So I'm now gonna turn this back over to Jason.
3: Thank you. Uh, these questions that I'm going to raise about the Comedia as a theological or philosophical text, they intersect with the questions that Ariel just left off with. Um, but I'm rather than try and give a summary of all of the variety of philosophical and theological themes in the Divine Comedy, which would take weeks rather than minutes to do. I just want to uh, uh, underline a couple of different basic strategies for reading the Commedia as uh, theological or as a philosophical text. So one option, and this is a really common option or a common way of interpreting the Divine Comedy, is to look at it as if it's illustrating or interrogating or defending specific philosophical and theological doctrines systematically, and particularly if one wants to read the Commedia as a visio, as a, as a text that is in some sense prophetic, this is the option that 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 you would go with. But you don't even have to read it as a as a as a visio to to have the basic impulse of saying, well, what does this journey that Dante is describing, what does it presuppose as a set of philosophical or theological doctrine? Now, when you read it this way, then of course the themes that become most relevant or that receive the most attention in the discussion of the Commedia have to do with themes of theodicy, of divine justice, of eschatology. Um, You have a lot of attention paid to Dante's medieval perspectives on human nature, especially the nature of intellect and love. Um, You have cosmology and metaphysics discussed. You also have the ecclesiology and political philosophy, you know, the the, the way in which the the kinds of issues that we saw in Convivial Four or Monarchia, how they get taken up in the Divine Comedy and how they get articulated there. Um, And I'll just give one, one quick example of a topic. So you saw on Ariel's slides the cosmology of the Divine Comedy, he's traveling up through the spheres, and and in the midst of that, there's discussion about the nature of free will. If the spheres, if the intelligences that govern those spheres in some sense also have an influence on human behavior, then to what extent is the human will free? And so there's explicit discussion of those sorts of issues by the characters in the Comedia. But there's another way of reading it. And these two ways of reading it aren't mutually exclusive, but you can have more or less emphasis on, on this other way, which is to read the comedia as mobilizing an array of philosophical and theological doctrines as part of a fictional or mythological framework. And reading it this way, you would see the mobilizations as serving independent philosophical or theological purposes. Uh, so in that case, for instance, uh, the, uh, one strategy is to pay attention to who is the person who's actually offering the, the the speech or the articulation of a philosophical doctrine, because, you know, we don't have Dante speaking for himself necessarily in these texts. And so the, the relation of the speaker to the person being spoken to is something that this strategy is going to pay more attention to. And so as a consequence, these ways of reading the Divine Comedy or the Commedia are going to tend to emphasize questions in the the fields of philosophy of literature and philosophy of religion. Uh, Why might Dante have chosen to write in the vernacular? Why might he have chosen to use poetry rather than the philosophical treatise as his main way of engaging and transforming readers? And so those questions intersect, as I said, with some of the ones that Ariel already highlighted. Um, Along with these two options for reading the Divine Comedy, I wanted to mention two other uh, uh, another spectrum in relationship to which you can interpret the Divine Comedy. So one option is to read the Comedias only as a text that can only and truly and fully and properly be appreciated by a select audience, by an audience that truly craves the bread of angels. And so here I have picked the, uh, uh, the painting La Morte Socrata by uh, David in 1787 as a kind of illustration of this way of thinking about the role of philosophy or even the role of theology as being really only for a select group. You see in the background in this painting, you see Xanthippe and others who are too emotional or too young being led away rather than have the opportunity to hear from Socrates about his views on the immortality of the soul. Um, Dante himself, and we won't have time to go into these passages tonight, but Dante himself in the *Commedia* tempts us with this view, the notion that the Commedia is really only for a few. And you can see it, for instance, in this direct address to the reader in Paradiso II, where he warns the reader to turn back lest they be lost, for instance. And there are some ways in which that passage or that direct, that direct address calls back to other moments in the Divine Comedy. He goes on in this same address, to say there are, uh, uh, there are you other few who stretched out your necks early on for the bread of angels, which one lives on here. They'll never say it You can set your course over the salt deep, staying within my wake before the water returns level. So there, there is even internal to the divine comedy's treatment of itself and the way that it addresses its reader. There is a tendency towards this esoteric element. On the other hand, there's another option. There's another way to read it, which is to read the Commedia as being accommodated philosophically and theologically to many different readers. And, and read this way, the esoteric dimensions enhance its capacity to speak to multiple audiences. But the work isn't meaningful only, or maybe not even primarily, or in a privileged way for only a small audience. And so those questions that Ariel highlighted about why is it a, why is it called a comedy? Why is it written in the vernacular? Why is Dante why has he abandoned the philosophical treatise in order to turn his attention to epic poetry? These become um, accessible under this heuristic or under this option B. And he also, even in the divine comedy, you have this other tendency uh, being announced as well. So for instance, when the pilgrim is in the sphere of the moon, he encounters Picarda and Empress Costanza. And he, He wonders why do they appear here in in the sphere of the moon? Does this mean that they're less blessed than other souls in other celestial spheres? Beatrice gives him an answer that is basically a principle of biblical allegoresis. She simply says, well, they only appear here as an accommodation to your needs, as an accommodation to your your limited intellect. Uh, To speak thus to your understanding is necessary for your understanding takes from sense perception alone what later it makes worthy of intellection. For this reason, scripture condescends to your faculties attributing feet and hands to God and meaning something different. And holy church represents Gabriel and Michael to you with human shape and the other uh, one who made Tobias whole, that would be uh, Gabriel. So you see that the Beatrice here is calling attention to the capacity of both biblical language, but also her own language—the language that Dante gives her uh, in the Commedia, the poetic language—to speak in a way that's accommodated to multiple uses. Uh, so I want to leave it there in terms of just a couple of different strategies for looking at the Divine Comedy. Uh, I—we have uh, this kind of is the end of the the main content of the presentation. We thought we would offer a few additional uh, texts uh, for general reading or for uh other reading uh, have i lost control no i still have it so i have four special mentions i'll, I'll make to you and then i'll turn it over to, to ariel uh this is in particular for the Lumen Christi audience i was thinking about what would i recommend to you all knowing your interests uh, if you're not widely familiar with dante uh, the first is understanding dante by john scott i think this is just a great comprehensive introduction to Dante. It's accessible, but it never dumbs anything down. I mean, he'll really get into the mix on some of the some of the main currents of debate in Dante scholarship, but he does it in a way that doesn't assume a lot of prior knowledge. I think it's a a really good introduction to the entirety of Dante's uh, corpus, as well as the main points out of the biography. But I have two texts, that I think address different aspects of Dante's as a theologian, really more under that kind of option A I gave you earlier, one by Christian Meuse, The Metaphysics of the Dante's Comedy. Uh, Here, uh, this text, Metaphysics of Dante's Comedy really stresses the Neoplatonic dimension and context in which Dante is working. Uh, And then the most more recent one by Vittorio Montemaggi, Reading Dante's Commedia as Theology, which is, as built. That's what the book does. It looks for the theological content in the Divine Comedy. It's also a really interesting uh, a, a strategy that uh, montemaggi employs in this because he, he discusses in the midst of the interpretation of the comedy, he discusses how he came to the views that he holds. And so he, he personalizes the discussion in a really interesting way. And then finally, I thought I'd give you one text that I've read recently that's more like a kind of option B, kind of reading, one that really is stressing not what is the correct uh, 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 theological doctrine that we're pulling out of the speeches, but instead what other philosophical points or p- political points might Dante be driving at through the divine comedy. Um, this, this really emphasizes a more secular view of the divine comedy and its purpose. Uh, and so I, I recommend this, Dante's Philosophical Life, Politics and Human Wisdom in the Purgatory by Paul Stern very highly. And over to you, Ariel.
2: Thank you, Jason, and um, I also recommend the books that he uh, put there. They're really fantastic and, and flush out so much of what we're able to just touch on briefly today. I've added a few, again, focusing on the poetic aspects of, of Dante, the Assembling the Lyric Self, by Olivia Holmes from a number of years ago, authorship from Troubadour Song to Italian poetry book gives you a real sense of the evolution um, of Dante's uh, thinking about poetry, experimenting with poetry. And as Jason alluded to at one point, um, Dante goes from the love of philosophy and philosophy as that sort of ideal and the woman to going back to another idea of a beloved, I shouldn't say going back, going towards theology in the Commedia. So he starts with love for Beatrice this carnal kind of love, then an angelic love, then a love for philosophy, then a love for theology, and somehow connecting this all together in the idea of love. I mean, love is the word for Dante. So looking at his evolution as a poet is very interesting for understanding what love is for him in the Commedia um, on many different levels. This um, Dante studies special issue um, from 2018 is phenomenal it's a bunch of articles about the long history of people writing about Dante, biographies of Dante, and trying to figure out the genealogy, the the, the history of his works, how to organize them, how to think about them, and of course of his thoughts. So uh, a study of these biographies and many recent biographies have come out especially in Italy in the last couple of years and then this is just a wonderful uh, book that was edited a few years ago by Varansky and Pertule, um, covering all the main topics in Dante's studies from politics to, to again, Dante's life, to his literary aspects, to phil- philosophical points. It's it's divided up in, in a way that you can really go to what you're most interested in, in seeing and having an expert Uh, give you the lowdown uh, about in the debates in all of these areas too. Um, Here, um, I'm just gonna pause on this for a second. These are the recommended translations of all of Dante's work, the majority of Dante's work. And we've got some new ones here from 2018 and some older ones as well. And then on this slide, we put a bunch of websites of online resources Um, that have remarkable amounts of information from the Societa Dantesca Italiana, the Dante online, which has not only Dante's texts, but that manuscript page that I showed you, that early uh, Tuscan manuscript copy, they have many scans, oh I don't know if it's scanned, photographed, um, uh, early copies of the Commedia, all kinds of things that you can find there, um, many different kinds of websites that we hope might be of interest to you, wanted to continue to explore. And then a very long, uh, but also incredibly brief selection of critical studies on Dante's work. Um, his biography and, and thought, and these are just a few things that, that we thought were relevant to points we mentioned today. And um, we're going to stop here. We did have the last lines, as you can see, from 124 to 145 of Paradiso 33 that we were going to debate uh, and discuss line by line, word by word, syllable by syllable, but I think we will stop. If anyone has a question about anything in these final verses, we'd be happy to take them. Thank you so much.
1: Indeed, thank you for this, this very rich and I, I delightfully uh, uh, double-sided convivium, uh, this banquet here that marries the, the poetic and artistic with the, this, this conceptual and philosophical theological. It's, uh, I, it's such a rich uh, presentation. You've given us a lot to chew on and we could, we could watch this presentation over and over again. So thank you so much for this accessible but very rich uh, presentation from you both. Uh, we've had several com- uh, converse- uh, d- questions for our conversation, but we only have a couple minutes, so we'll try to we'll try to jump right in. There's a lot of questions about uh, uh, the influences that that Dante experienced uh, in, in his reading. Uh, there was a lot that we've already discussed, but there's a couple things that uh, uh, that attendees asked about as well. Uh, one was we 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 received we we heard about the classical uh, poets. The, the liberal arts tradition, the encyclopedists, uh, uh, some of the philosophical uh, work with Albert and with and others. Uh, Joshua asks, uh, maybe is there any Boethius in his prose and metrum, his this his poetry hiding behind uh, the convivium or, or the convivio?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, Boethius is of course one of the most widely read Authors of the of, of this period in the Middle Ages, uh, the Consolation of Philosophy in particular, is a text that Dante is alluding to in the depiction of Lady Philosophy as Donna Gentile. He's mm-hmm. also recovering out of the Vita Nuova a new conception of Donna Gentile. So D- Donna Gentile in Vita Nuova appears as a real woman and a woman who was a consolation to him because of Beatrice's inaccessibility. Mm-hmm. So she becomes a kind of secondary muse. In Convivio, she's refigured in this cosmological realm as an intelligence, as an angelic intelligence that leads human beings to happiness insofar as is psychologically possible for us. So the the allusions to Boethius are deep and rich, but he's not very explicit in the connection to Boethius. Um, The the, the philosophical resources in Dante, whether you're talking about Convivio or you're talking about the Divine Comedy, are very difficult to parse out. It looks like he's read everything and could be citing anything at any particular moment, Mm. right? Um, So there's certainly a lot of Libra de Causis here. There's probably a lot of Albertus Magnus, although he doesn't necessarily cite Albertus uh, very frequently. There is also, because of the poetic tradition he's involved in that Ariel talked about, there are almost certainly references and reclaiming of his relationship with Guido Cavalcante. Uh, So there are the Cavalcantean themes, and Cavalcante had a reputation for kind of Avaroism. So when He was dark and
2: brooding too.
3: He was dark and brooding,
2: brooding, long-suffering, yes
3: not just Averroist, but Averroist in this really dark and materialist way at that, so.
2: Here's where I would start to uh, absolutely agree with everything Jason said, but earlier when he was talking about the move from the Vita Nuova and Beatrice's consolation to Lady Philosophy as consolation, absolutely true. There is this one little strange thing that happens though in the Vita Nuova where after Beatrice dies and Dante is incredibly, heartbroken and upset there is a woman at the window who we never is never named who consoles him and there's this whole concept of a different kind of consolation a kind of humanity and civic almost duty and dante's love and almost friendship and respect for this woman that could turn erotic that is problematic in many ways because it doesn't actually bring him to the next level. It sort of keeps him in the same suffering place of the Kabbalistic world. So the evolution, it's sort of a little bumpy bef- between Beatrice and Lady Philosophy for Dante.
3: Uh, I, so I just want to add one last thing and then I'm sure this will lead into another question you, you have there, Robert. The, it's it's in the areas of metaphysics cosmology and deep, deep theological investigation that Dar- Dante's hardest to pin down as to what his views are. In the realm of politics, he's not shy. And the, the, and the, the main philosophical influence there is Aristotle, of course. And, and he, Aristotle's the most cited among the philosophers. He's, he's the most authoritative without any question. But it's in the realm of cosmology, theology, eschatology, Metaphysics in general that Dante is much much harder to kind of figure out, uh, and why those books like the the Metaphysics of the Divine Comedy by Christian writers are so so interesting, in the line that they take and trying to trying to parse that out.
1: Thank you. No, that's that's really helpful, and I, I also have to ask before we move away from the influences question. Uh, Speaking, thinking about uh, Dante in terms of Beatrice and this this transforming erotic love, um, is there any role of for uh, the Psalms or the, especially the Song of Songs and the, the Hebrew wisdom literature as as feeding into uh, Dante's artistic vision, artistic uh, language?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would have to you know do a little research to be able to tell you exactly uh, the moments in which. Uh, Dante would be sort of setting directly, but for sure um, the, the mystical aspects that, that are, are brought into his poetry that have to do with love and, and transformation and vision and the body parts representing other um, symbols are, are definitely in line with that. Um, there's, there's a lot of interesting uh, eros that you can see in the Paradiso in, in the abstract imagery there. Um, and Solomon is, an, is a huge figure for Dante and he's in the, Dante puts him of course in, in the heavens and um, actually in Paradise 33 one of the things that, that we were going to talk about is the squaring of the circle and, and how can that be done, and this is quite impossible, but the idea of uh, Solomon's sea in which um, it is three hands around what is one hand, I think, from side to side. I can't remember the exact quotation, but it's basically in a perfect um, universe, I guess, in something that's outside of space and time in this in this way, um, pi equals three. And there is this connection to uh, the three and the one. And so, I mean, Solomon, for sure, in Dante,
3: would you, yeah. The other thing you could add about Solomon is that when he actually does appear or he's referenced explicitly in Paradiso, he is his virtue that is extolled explicitly by Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is yeah, the speaker. Yeah. The virtue that is associated with Solomon is regal prudenza. Yes. It's not his metaphysical insight that is uh, highlighted in Thomas's speech. It's, it's, again, it's his political insight. And so you, you get these really interesting, you know, kinds of questions. That that kind of moves in a different direction than your, your question was originally asking, Robert, but, but Solomon himself is identified with mm-hmm. prudenza, with prudence, with mm-hmm. the capacity for judgment, not wisdom as Sophia or as contemplative activity. Mm-hmm. And and so that makes that makes Solomon a really interesting figure for another reason.
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh- there's, we've had a lot of other questions. Uh, both of you uh, left little seeds of questions about Dante's, um, uh, well, the hot water that Dante was, was going to get in. We, we, so we've had some questions about Averroes and Averroism, as well as maybe the condemnation uh, that he received from the Cardinal. Uh, do we, would it be all right if you would uh,
3: expand a little bit on, on these points? Hey, I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll give a couple of references um, to, to some other works, and then ask Ariel to weigh in as well. The Monarchia controversy by uh, Cassell is a great place to go for the mm-hmm. uh, history of the transmission, the early transmission history of the Monarchia. It, um... I didn't have that in the uh, in the bibliography, but it's just called the Monarchy controversy, and and it actually has the text of the Monarchia in it as well. So that's it's another edition that you could use for. The primary text, um, and that goes a little bit into that the hist- the, the the history in the late 128 uh, sorry the late 1320s of the Monarchia's reception and its use as propaganda literature. So mm-hmm. that's where I would I would suggest people go to look at that. I think that the, the the questions about Dante's heretical nature, at least in his own day, had more to do with his attitude towards papal authority because that's how he was being read and used right the monarchical controversy was not about not primarily in it, in its day was not about possible averroist elements in it. Uh, although averroes is mentioned in some of the manuscripts it's not the averroism that seems to be the problem it's that it, it's explicitly a rejection of the bull unum sanctum explicit rejection of Papal authority as having a temporal um, primacy over the over the emperor, and so that's where the controversy comes in. Now, as for the other texts, and in particular Convivio three, and to a certain extent, certain references both in the Divine Comedy and the Monarchia, there have always been questions about Dante's possible Averroism. He clearly read Averroes. There seems to be an interest in the possible intellect is unified and whole for all human beings, which is a, a kind of standard Averroes doctrine. But how far he goes in endorsing that view has been the subject of intense debate for a long, long time. And all I'll really say about it here, you know, other than go read about it, <laughs> is that one way of looking at what he's doing is that he's influenced by Albertus Magnus in those moments. Others look at him as being influenced by Averroes more directly. Right. Um, So I don't want to get too much into the debates about it, but there's more than one way of looking at what's going on. Mm.
2: No, and just to add that the uh, Monarchia, Monarchia, is the only text by Dante that uh, was up for burning and um, also on the index of forbidden books later when that index starts to be uh, populated. Mm. So not the Commedia, not for putting popes into hell, but the
1: Monarchia. Mm. Oh, thank you. So that's that's really helpful. So the, the the comedy was was never seen to be in disfavor in the by the church or to contradict church teachings. Is is that
3: is that? I, well, that might be going too far. Yeah. But <laughs> oh, okay. But one of but one of the reasons apparently that Dante was not posthumously burned mm. when the cardinals were getting really angry about the use of the monarchia was that he had already, even by the late 1320s, become such a luminary figure in uh, Italian politics and Italian poetry uh, that the, the the Cardinal was explicitly warned by his advisor, look, if you burn him, you're going to make him a martyr. You're going to make the situation worse, not better. Mm-hmm. At least this is Castle's take on on that, that history. Mm-hmm. So were, were all of his views regarded as uh, safely orthodox by the church, that would be a stretch. But um, he, he he captured a popular imagination in a way that they didn't have the tools to deal with. I guess is how I would put it. Mm.
2: Poetry is, a, of course, a wonderful um, uh, means for for creating double meanings and mm. for for hiding some of his more or or subtly weaving in some of his more controversial ideas. Mm. Yeah.
1: And and uh, I might toss in here as well uh, if people are more interested in this figure of Averroes, this, this Muslim philosopher who commented on Aristotle, they can they can uh, go back in our YouTube channel and look at the the, uh, the uh, presentation we did on Thomas Aquinas. We've had several questions about who this figure is, but it's it's too big, I think. For, for there, there
2: is also here. a uh, a book uh, Dante and Islam. I think it's a special issue. Uh-huh. Uh, of Dante studies, was it? A special, a, issue of Dante
3: yeah, a special issue. I think that's volume 134 somewhere. How in do there. you
2: remember the volume number? That's crazy.
3: <laughs> it's, it's just a few years before that one that you had up as your oh, re- okay. I might be off by a year or two, but there's also uh, Gregory Stone's book, Dante and the. Um, what is the call? What is it called? Anyways, Gregory Stone, Dante and. Uh, the philosophy of religion, or something like that. But Stone looks at Dante's possible indebtedness even to Alfarabi.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's fascinating! Thank you for these these references for further reading. Uh, we'll do two more questions uh, if if we have time. Uh, we've had one question from uh, attendee Carmen, who asked who who asked this question. It's a bit of a long one, so I'll try to read it slowly. Both professors have mentioned Dante's textual exploration of how Beatrice fits into his journey to God. Mm-hmm. Are there passages or secondary sources that you would recommend that we look at to discuss womanhood in Dante's work or the development of his thought on womanhood? Mm-hmm. By this, I do not mean feminist readings of his, of his work, but texts that draw out a theology of womanhood. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this, this talk and, and for this discussion.
2: That's a that's a wonderful question. And first thing I will say is that more and more scholars are looking into that question. It mm-hmm. is not something that was central to Dante studies in Europe or in, in America for the last century. But there is a famous book called uh, The Body of Beatrice mm-hmm. that might be uh, of interest, um, I believe. Is it Victoria Kirkham who wrote a book, uh, who wrote a piece on Dante's women? Um, I could send a bibliography to Carmen if, if she, if you can, if she would like to email me directly um, of some of the authors who are working on on Dante and women now. Um, does anything else come to mind,
3: Jason? Yeah, Teodora Carlini's uh, yeah. uh, Realpolitik article in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think discusses Inferno 5 and the representation of Francesca uh, with explicit attention to the depiction of women. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be an excellent place. Barolini, uh, one of her texts that may have made... Yes, the Undivine Comedy.
2: Yes, the Undivine Comedy, Barolini right here. So yes, uh, I'd be happy to offer more. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, last question, a, a huge question, uh, but uh, uh, looking forward to the, the the series that we're opening up with the humanist tradition that's coming out of this. Um, Trenton asks a, a question about Dante's influence and, on the development of Italian. Trenton asks, what influence does Dante have on the development of Italian, and how does that influence compare with that uh, of Petrarch or Boccaccio mm-hmm. or, or perhaps others that we could, we could think of?
2: Well, Jason and I can both answer this um, <laughs> in similar and also divergent ways. I'll just say uh, a, a couple of things. Um, it is fascinating to see, in fact, how the Divine Comedy does become sort of this repository of Italian language on which then Boccaccio and Petrarca um, and many other uh, Tuscan, poets and writers uh, build on. It seems that not that there wasn't vernacular poetry and writing, of course, before Dante, but the complexity and immensity of his uh, poem, of his language, of other things he wrote too, becomes sort of the standard. There are moments uh, in the Renaissance, in other periods throughout uh, history where Dante's language or parts of it is looked at as too harsh and not perfect for certain forms of writing. It goes up and down. You can kind of trace when it's in favor and less in favor, but it does form the basis of modern Italian. Many people, in fact, will tell you that it is easier to read Dante's medieval Italian than it is to read medieval early English, even middle English. So that's the quick answer I would give. Jason,
3: would you like to add to that? Uh, that's what I, I was going to say. You know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to learn uh, modern Italian, and you started with Dante, you, you wouldn't be in terrible shape. That isn't true for Chaucer, who's you know a, a rough contemporary of Dante's. a little bit after Dante, in fact. Oh. So there's that. In a way, I mean, this is probably going out on a limb, and, and Ariel might uh, might want to say that I've, I've gone too far, but the I think that, in a certain sense, he accomplished what he set out to do with that, uh, uh, with the, the vulgaria eloquentia, in creating a unified language for the Italian people. Now, there are debates among others uh, about the role of Petrarch or Boccaccio in in that movement, uh, but I, Dante seems certainly to have have created a unified vernacular in a way that very few authors ever accomplish. I mean the. The only analog in English is probably Shakespeare, mm-hmm. not Chaucer, right? So that's that's one answer. Anyway, I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah, 300 years earlier. Well, it, this is a, I reflect that this is a tremendous uh, pairing of the artistic, the poetic, the conceptual, the theological, and, and in the coming weeks we'll have uh, we'll separate these out a little bit. Next week we'll be looking at Albert Alberti and artistry, and after that. Ficino on Platonic philosophy, but it's so wonderful to have them both paired here in our first presentation. So thank you very much, Professor Alexander. Thank you very much, Professor Saber, for, these, for this wonderful this wonderful presentation,
2: indeed.
0: Indeed, and um, on behalf of Lumen Christie, once more, thank you to our esteemed presenters tonight um, for a fantastic conversation. And thank you to our partners, um, especially the American Kuzanu Society. Um, In the final slide that we'll show in just a minute, uh, you'll see a link for the Kuzanu Society um, where you can learn more about them and even become a member. Um, And thank you all for tuning in and you can join us here every Tuesday as expert scholars lead us into different aspects of reason and beauty in the Renaissance. Um, I'd also invite you to become a partner in our work to bring the broader Christian intellectual tradition to students and to wider audiences by supporting us at www.lumenchristi.org donate. Otherwise, thank you again to all of our speakers and take care.